You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good evening. If some of you don't know me, I'm Brian Wood, and uh, sitting up front is my wonderful wife, Lori, of many years. And to all of you that are out tonight, gosh, I'm glad that you all made it. Tickle pink to have each of you. I'm excited to uh, start a brand new series tonight called The Doctrines of Grace. So with that, I'd like to invite you, would you join me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless our time together, and tonight is going to be an introduction. It's going to be 18 weeks, and it could take longer, and that would be okay, because I'm in no hurry to rush through the subject of the doctrines of grace, but I'm anticipating an 18-week series, and uh, I want you to know that, ask questions. This is not my study. This is our study of God's Word. And I really want us all to really take hold of these great, tremendous truths that we're going to be looking at in the Scriptures. So I really want to encourage you, ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask a question. I've always said there is no dumb question. What's dumb is when we don't ask questions. So uh, don't be shy. With that, let's open a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, we come before you here this evening to ask that your blessing be upon us all. My prayer has been the same for the last few weeks, that you would open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to hear your word, to ask your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, and then would you help us to apply these truths to our lives. And my goal, my purpose, Father, in all of this is to bring glory and honor to you and that all of us would be humbled when we understand to the best of our abilities what God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, has done on our behalf to bring us to salvation and to also complete that in which you have begun. So, Father, open the eyes and ears of your people tonight. And uh, help me to communicate clearly and concisely what you have for us this evening. We thank you for this opportunity and pray you'd bless us all. We pray this in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. Now, real quick, before I begin just this uh, outline tonight, I'm going to pass around a book. And everybody take a peek at this book. And the reason I'm doing that is... Throughout the weeks, I'm going to bring individual books to hand to you to pass around, take a look at it. And I'm starting with this book tonight because this is one of the best things ever written on the doctrines of grace. I was very tickled to have found this book and read it. Easy read. You could do it in a week. Um, The author is fantastic. So here's a resource for you that's available if you want to go deeper and further into the study. And the weeks to come, I'll bring some more books. At the end of the study, I'm going to give you a bibliography of everything that I used throughout this study. So with that, 
the doctrines of grace. Folks, in every generation, every generation since the beginning of the church age, Christians both in the pulpit and in the pew have to have a clear, concise view of the gospel. Very important. And the reason for that, because the power unto salvation, Scripture says, Romans 1.16, is what? The gospel. So it's critically important that all of us in Christ Jesus have a very clear understanding of that gospel message. It is of the utmost importance that the gospel proclaimed and believed is to be recognized as what it is, the good news of who? It's the good news of God. Underpinned by his authority and therefore based on his word. Nothing else. Nothing more but nothing less. Now that gospel is something that all of us had embraced at one time in our lives and came to faith. But we want to make sure that we understand what is that gospel. Why? Once again, because it is the power of God unto salvation, the gospel. Paul said that he came to preach nothing but what? The gospel. So it's critical that we begin our brief study here over these 18 weeks understanding this gospel. So as an evangelical Christian, one who believes and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am concerned that what I believe and preach be the same good news as what the scriptures outline. That the good news... Is that what Jesus Christ himself preached? And of course, he commissioned his apostles. And he commissioned you and I to share that gospel. Now, those who are evangelical Christians are divided today, folks, concerning certain features of the gospel. It's been a problem for years in the church that Christians are divided on their understanding of the gospel. Now, whether they admit it or not, they are either Calvinists or Arminians. Now, I'm going to share a confession here this morning, this evening. In the years that I've been teaching and preaching publicly, I have never used the term Calvinist or Arminian. I have used other terms. I decided after lots of prayer, and to be honest, after Justin Peters preached two weeks ago, and I applauded what he had done with that fabulous passage, he used the word Calvinist and Arminians. Now, it's not that we're afraid of those terms, but right off of the bat, when the term Calvinist comes up, there's a stigma on that that people don't like. Therefore, I had never used it. I used the term reformed or biblical or biblicist. In this study, I'm going to use the terms Calvinists and Arminians. Why? Because there are two 
types of theological mindsets in the church today and has been all the way back to the third century. That's how far church history has been with these two terms. Now, two basic ideas are at stake in the view that one takes. Two basic ideas. The first has to do with man. Since the fall of man, what can man do towards his own salvation? That's one view. What can man do towards his own salvation? That's the one view. The second view. The second issue has to do with God and what kind of salvation God sets forth before men. Is what God offers an actual salvation or a possible salvation? Now friends, these issues which we, which have been raised in the church repeatedly, they were first brought to a head during uh, the Augustinian age in uh, the third century, excuse me, the fourth century. They were first brought to a head in a controversy between Augustine, St. Augustine, and Pelagius. And that took place in the late fourth century and the early fifth centuries. Then down through the Middle Ages, they were discussed and argued by medieval theologians for decades. In the 16th century, Martin Luther defended the Augustinian position. And by the way, he himself was an Augustinian monk. But he defended St. Augustine's position in, uh, against Aramis. Or Aramis. I'm not sure quite how to pronounce it. Aramis, Aramis. Then John Calvin entered the controversy in opposition to the Church of Rome and the semi-Pelagians of his days. And then again in the 17th centuries, these questions, these debates, these positions were again debated. And they were debated at the Synod of Dort. And that took place in 1618 to 1619. A little church history here. And this synod, this group of men who were followers of Jacob Arminius, who opposed the Augustinian side, the Lutheran side, not Calvinism yet, these men died. And when they died, it presented a difficulty against the Augustinian, and now I'm going to use the word Calvinistic, understanding of the gospel. But let me tell you what the response of this synagogue of men was. Very important. The response of the synagogue, synod, excuse me, in regards to these two issues was to uphold the biblical truth and teaching of not just Scripture, friends, but yes, of Augustine, and then later John Calvin. And then a little bit later down the line came John Wesley, and Arminianism again resurrected itself once again with the Methodist movement. Now, the synod's response it may be briefly summarized 
in something you may recognize, you may not. It's in a word you've possibly heard called tulip. Have you ever heard the word tulip? Tulip. Tulip is something that somebody penned. It's an acronym. It is not on John Calvin's back. He had nothing to do with it. But TULIP is an acronym that is used to put a title, so to speak, on biblical truths, the doctrines of grace. Okay? TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the preservation or perseverance of the saints. Now, just briefly tonight, I'm going to outline the two different theological mindsets. Calvinism, Arminianism. Some people could say it, could, it would be Augustinianism and Pelagianism, equal terms. Let's use the term that we're all very used to today, Calvinism and Arminianism. Once again, TULIP, an acronym to describe or label a teaching of Scripture. Let me give you another example of that. Do you know that there is not in the Scriptures, there is not the term the Trinity? The word Trinity is not found in Scripture. But we know that the Trinity exists. We've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity same thing with this term TULIP. It is an acronym for absolute, clear, concise biblical teaching. So let's talk about it now. These five teachings constitute the doctrines of grace. And that's why I'm just introducing this to get you going tonight. And may I say TULIP may be defined more precisely by the use of other words. But I think the acronym is about as outstanding as it gets. As we go into our study, I'll throw out some other terms uh, instead of using the terms of TULIP. Example, uh, when we get to um, the total depravity of man, I've heard it said it's the inability of man. Two interchangeable words. Let's use the word TULIP tonight, though. So a, a brief glance at this word TULIP. T, total depravity. Man, by and far after the fall, is totally depraved or corrupt. He is unable to do anything towards his own salvation. Calvinistic view. A Pauline view. A Jesus Christ view. All the apostles, their view. Now the opposing view, the Arminian. The opposing view is that since man is accountable before God to repent and believe the gospel, he must therefore be able to do so on his own. Everybody get that? The two views? The next term, you, unconditional election. 
the Calvinistic view. God from all eternity did unconditionally elect to salvation certain ones out of the mass of sinful men. I like to use the term out of the mass of humanity. He did this not because he foresaw that they should believe the gospel would offer to them, but because of his own love and purpose to glorify himself in the salvation of those whom he chose freely and unconditionally. So far, so good. Opposing view, Arminian view. God's election is conditional. That he foresaw that certain men would believe the gospel and on that basis, he chose them to be the heirs of life eternal. Interesting view. What are they saying there? That God looked down in the halls of the future and saw what men were going to do as far as believing or rejecting the gospel and therefore he reacted after he saw through time what men were going to do. Now let me, before I move on, let me say this. I'm going to start trying to ponder lots of thinking, I hope. That makes God subject to man. Third issue, L, limited atonement. So we got T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, and now L, did I say U? Yeah, I did. L, limited atonement. Limited atonement, Christ, in the sacrifice of himself on the cross, bore the sins of those whom God had elected unconditionally to eternal life, and thus actually secured the salvation of those for whom he died. His atonement is thus limited to them. Opposing view, Arminian view. The other view is that Christ sacrificed himself for each and every man to make salvation possible for them by removing every obstacle in the way of man being a recipient of eternal life if he believes in Christ. We will discuss that at great length at a, another time, but I see you smiling. elect. And the argument is, for God so loved the world. God finds no favor that any man should perish. We will discuss it at great length. I like seeing those wheels turning already. Excellent. That's what I'm hoping for. Here's another one that people struggle with. The I. Irresistible grace. The Calvinistic view, God's grace 
is irresistible in the elect, meaning those for whom Christ died, the limited. And God's purpose of election and the benefits of Christ's saving work will be effectively applied to them by the Holy Spirit. So they will be regenerated and believe the gospel. In other words, God's grace, God drawing you unto himself is so irresistible for the elect that he's going to come to faith. The flip side, the Arminians say, no, God's grace is resistible by all and that its reception is based not only on the work of the Holy Spirit, but the cooperation of man in receiving God's grace and faith. God woos that man, he draws that man, and he does so in order for man to cooperate with him. Once again, it's what God's doing and it's what's man doing, and we're going to mesh them together. Is that what Scripture teaches? The last one. Perseverance of the saints. It's interesting. Uh, today, one of my outstanding subs, I just stopped and, and, and he's on another project, not mine, but down the street from my project. And I said, Jimmy, it's, it's so beautiful. And, and what a joy it is to have such a great sub like you on our projects. He's everything a general contractor would want. And he says, gosh, but you know, Brian, he says, I'm wicked. Oh, Jimmy, well, yeah, I am too. He's a believer. He says, you know, I'm always worried that I'm, I'm not going to make it home to heaven. I looked at him and I said, Jimmy, are you, do you believe you can lose your salvation? He says, oh, yeah. I am going to, can't get him here, but I'm going to Xerox my notes and send them to him. He said he'd love to see him. You know what he's hung up on? Perseverance of the saints. What is the perseverance of the saints according to Pauline, according to the Bible, according to the Calvinist? Those whom God has chosen. Those whom God has chosen for whom Christ died, who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, will be preserved by God's power and will persevere in faith unto the end and be saved. You would think Philippians 1.6 would be enough. What God has started, God is going to complete. The Armenian says, man who truly believes the gospel may at some or any point leave off believing in Christ and therefore lose eternal life and perish eternally. That one hurts me the most because I can't imagine living my Christian life always wondering because I am a very sinful, flawed man and I am always would be concerned, have I lost my salvation now? And by the way, if I have, what can I do to get it back? That'd be terrible. Well, let's keep going. This evening, we're beginning what I've titled the Doctrines of Grace. 
we can call it, we are doing a study on the five points of Calvinism. I prefer to call it the doctrines of grace because they are truly doctrines of grace. They are all of God, completely of him. So let's call it the doctrines of grace. Now, I think we've all heard this term doctrine. We hear that all the time, doctrine. In fact, one of my favorite Bible expositors was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said this all the time, doctrine first. Now, I think he was plagiarizing Charles Spurgeon because I think Spurgeon said the same thing, doctrine first. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Well, what is doctrine? This term doctrine simply means the substance of teaching. So we could, we could transfer the word doctrine to teaching. What teaching are we looking at here? We need to look at the Bible. Really, we're not interested in what John Calvin taught, but what John Calvin taught was superb. It was outstanding. But what we want to look at is what the Bible teaches. What does God teach? So we're going to be looking at the teachings of the Bible or the doctrines of the Bible, specifically the doctrines of grace. So when we speak of the biblical doctrine, we're speaking simply of scriptural teaching. Now, does anybody know in here the, the gentleman by the name of Michael Horton, one of our younger, very, very respected theologians? Michael Horton, he is the professor of systematic theology and apologetics at Westminster Seminary in Escondido, California. And he wrote in his book, The Christian Faith, I highly recommend it, he wrote this, I quote him, Doctrine is the teaching that comes from God rather than the ideas, experiences, or ethical ideas that arise from within us. Oh, I like that. Will you allow me to repeat that? Let me repeat that. In his book, The Christian Faith, he says this, I quote, Doctrine is the teaching that comes from God rather than the ideas, experiences, or ethical ideas that arise from within us. He's right. Michael Horton's right. Doctrine is biblical teaching that comes from God the Father. God is the source of biblical doctrine. And biblical doctrine is found in the pages of Scripture. Thus, in our next several weeks, 18 weeks, we shall take a close look at the biblical teaching, the doctrines of grace, which clearly establish the components, the strands, the links, so to speak, in the chain of salvation. Let me repeat that, because I think that's very important. <clears throat> We're going to take a look at the doctrines of grace, which clearly establish the components, the strands, the links in the chain of salvation. So in the doctrines of grace, we have specific teachings that are links. And every link in a chain is critical. And the reason... The doctrines of grace work so wonderfully as links. You're going to see that in this chain, the plan 
of salvation. And every link is tied to itself. Take one of those links away, it all falls apart. Now, if, if I'm correct, and, and tell me if I am, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Isn't that the old saying? If you don't have a weak link, you've got a very strong chain. There's no weak links in the doctrines of grace. Let me put it another way. If salvation is a supernatural work of God, and it is, then there exists a supernatural salvific work which the triune God alone provides for all true recipients of God's grace. That's why the writer of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, declared, Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. So, beloved, is doctrine important? Let, let me put it another way. Is doctrine necessary? Our Lord Jesus Christ thought doctrine was important, and he thought it was very necessary. For he himself established the doctrine to his disciples in his Gospel of John. Jesus proclaimed in John 7, 16 through 17, My doctrine is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God. Now, it was true that Jesus' knowledge was not derived from any human institution. And his teaching, his doctrine, opposed that of the teachers in Judaism. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 through 29. And so it was. When Jesus had ended these sayings, his teaching that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The greatest religious leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, their teaching did not hold a candle to what Jesus taught. But friends, that does not mean that it was merely his own personal opinion. It wasn't Jesus' own personal opinion. No, it came directly from God the Father who sent him. Jesus declared in John 8.28, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father taught me. But remember that Jesus also promised that the person who honestly seeks the truth revealed by God, the one who is willing to do God's will, that he shall know the truth concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God. Friends, I want you to understand that when we dive into this high theology, deep theology, the Holy Spirit is not going to leave us alone. He's going to reveal the truth to us if we're open for that truth. I would love if one of my outstanding subcontractors who does all my timber framing were here for this series. He's Arminian. 
And in all the conversations that we have together, when I present God's word, nothing else, here's God's word, what do you do with this? He's not open. But if we will be open to the will of God to understand his word, his doctrine, his teaching, set forth originally, first one, by Jesus Christ himself, John's gospel, the Holy Spirit will reveal that truth to us. And let me tell you, it is man-humbling and God-honoring. It's magnificent. We might not in our finite minds comprehend it all. But that doesn't mean it isn't true what it teaches. Jesus said, the one who is willing to do God's will, that he shall know the truth concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God. Now, loved ones, the Lord's challenge to that crowd in that day was simple. That was a very simple challenge. If they would humble themselves before God's word to know and obey it, they would come to a sure realization that his doctrine was true. Beloved, that challenge still stands true today, centuries later, for us. That challenge still stands true today, two centuries later. The assurance, excuse me, the assurance promised in this verse is available to all genuine believers today. The doctrines of grace, as I already said, were established by Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament. He introduced them first time ever in the Gospel of John. And recorded in the Gospel of John is the teaching, the doctrines that Jesus received from his Father, the one who sent him. And that teaching is available to us today. Now the Apostle Paul echoed Christ's sentiments to the Ephesian church when he said this, that they should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Ephesians 4.14. And unfortunately, it's the spiritual children, meaning the babes, the immature Christian, who's immature in the word, who is in that constant danger of falling victim and prey to every new religious fad, every new interpretation of scripture. But it doesn't have to be that way. You see, the doctrines of the Bible, they're very important. Their teachings direct, guide the lives of the true believer in a way in which one should go. Now the problem is, many professing Christians are children again. They're babes, they're immature. They're immature to the word of God. Now I'm going to use a term that I use often. The contemporary visible church today. What do I mean by that? When we look out across the landscape of America and we look at the church today, and Lori and I have had the privilege of me having a pulpit ministry for years where I'm traveling, preaching, and I'm in different churches all the time. And what we see staggers us. 
So when we look out across the landscape of the church in America today, the contemporary visible church, the people claiming, professing to be Christians, church attenders, it's frightening. It's not good. It's not good because they don't have any understanding of Scripture. Their understanding of Bible is horrible. They're almost biblically illiterate. They never grew from being children or babes in Christ, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And therefore, the contemporary visible church is not healthy. That doesn't mean this church. I will tell you this church as a whole is extremely healthy. We have elders who exposit the word of God both from Sunday school to a pulpit. Very important. And what do they exposit? Our Bible, Scripture. So the writer of Hebrews rebuked the Jewish Christian church for their immaturity in the Christian faith. Look how they said it. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, Jim will be there pretty soon. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracle of God, meaning the word of God. For you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only in milk is unskilled in the word of God, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. I would hate to get that letter. Paul said to the Corinthian church, he says, Brethren, do not be children, babes, immature, in understanding, but in understanding, be mature. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Friends, Christians today are illiterate to the teachings of Scripture. They don't have a clue about any doctrines from the Scripture, let alone the doctrines of grace. Now, the Apostle Paul, he had a lot to say to Timothy regarding doctrine too. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles, grab your Bibles and turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Excuse me. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. And I said to you that Paul had a lot to say to Timothy regarding doctrine. In verse 16, he said this. Take heed, Timothy. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, to the teachings. And then he says, continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear. Paul apparently thought doctrine and teaching was extremely important. Turn over to chapter 6, would you please, in 1 Timothy, and let's look at verses 3 through 5. Here's a warning from Paul regarding teaching, doctrine. In verse 3 of chapter 6, Paul said this, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine or to the teaching which accords with godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments, 
over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicion, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such men withdrawal. Paul couldn't instill in Timothy enough the importance of doctrine. We're going to be looking at the doctrines of grace starting next week. Doctrine's important, especially when it comes to salvation. Soteriology, the study of salvation. How did we get saved? We're going to go to the doctrines of grace, to God's word to find out. Go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, would you please? Verse 10. I really am going to pick it up in, in verse 1. I really want you to see the whole context here. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Stop there. What's the last days? When Scripture says the last days, what is the last days? Well said. Yeah. We're in the last days. Paul's saying in the last days, perilous times will come. By the way, times are getting not so good right now, are they? Perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who crept into households. Interesting. And make captive, captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resist Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will manifest to all as theirs also was. Verse 10, but you, but you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, my teachings, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. Timothy followed Paul's teaching, his doctrine. Paul got his doctrine from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ got his doctrine from God the Father who sent him. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You all know these verses well. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for what? Doctrine, teaching. For reproof, here's what doctrine does. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Who for? 
that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of us in this room are men and women of God. We're believers in Jesus Christ. The scriptures, the doctrine, were given that the man of God, that we could be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Is doctrine important? Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, one more. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. I love this passage. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now stop there. Does your text have an exclamation point behind that? Mom, you have what? ESV? Exclamation point? Anybody have NASB? Exclamation point? Oh, man. New King James. Exclamation point. Here's why it's in there. And it is in italics. He says, preach the word. There's nothing else to preach. Preaching is heralding truth, heralding God's word, heralding doctrine, heralding teaching. He's telling him, herald the doctrine. Preach it. And he says, here's why. Be ready in season and out of season. What for? Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Well, why? For a time will come. When they will not endure sound teaching, sound doctrine. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Beloved, those days are upon us. Not here, not at Coot, but go elsewhere. They will raise up for themselves teachers. Let's keep going. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And notice, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Oh, Timothy, but you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. His ministry was to preach the word, nothing else, nothing less. His ministry was to preach the doctrines found in the Holy Scriptures. Now, Paul didn't just exhort Timothy to this. He exhorted Titus, the pastor of the church of Crete, also about doctrine. So let's go there. Go over to your right, one book to Titus. And look at Titus, please, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Sound teaching. Verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, in teaching, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. 
And by the way, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Look at the exhortation there. One more, grab down to verse 10. Let's finish it up. He says, don't pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. Notice the word, that they may adore the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. Titus had nothing else required of him except to preach sound doctrine. Folks, we as believers in Jesus Christ need to be able to teach to not a degree of maybe you're, you're up here or you're in a classroom or you're a professor, but to anybody, your children, your neighbors, your friends, your family, you need to also be able to teach sound doctrine. And the way you'll know how to teach sound doctrine is by studying Scripture, the teachings, the doctrine of the Bible. So is doctrine important? Is doctrine necessary? I'm asking it again. It is. We see that here tonight in Scripture. Absolutely and unequivocally, yes, doctrine's important and doctrine is necessary. Sound doctrine and true doctrine is absolutely and unequivocally important and necessary for all believers of all times, of all ages. Does that mean our children, our grandchildren, our wives, our sons, our daughters, our brothers, our sisters? You bet. Now, on the flip side, Paul warned the church of Colossae to be aware and on guard, un, on guard against false doctrine. He wrote this, familiar to you, Colossians 2.8, beware unless anyone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, I love that verse. I've held on to that verse for 26 years as a believer in Jesus Christ. Beware unless anyone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit. We have all kinds of philosophy running rampant in America today. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. That's the end result of, of false doctrine. According to the basic principles of the world. Who's the world? Satan. Well, we already looked at this. Paul again exhorted Timothy. Now I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Little history in the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was one of the richest churches in those days with a tremendous heritage. And their heritage was they were known for sound doctrine. If you remember the first letter to the churches in the book of Revelation, the first letter is to the church at Ephesus. The Lord said he had one thing against them. It was not that they weren't sound in doctrine. They fought off the false teachers constantly in the church of Ephesus. 
they lost their first love. Can we fall in love with the scriptures and forget about falling in love with Christ? We need to be careful of that. I'll say that to myself too. I love the word of God, but I need to love the God of the word more. That's important. The church at Ephesus was sound in doctrine. Man, did they have a heritage, but they lost their first love. They fought off the false teachers. Scripture outlines that clearly. If we get time through the study, maybe I'll take and show you that real quick through Scripture. Quite interesting. But yes, Paul said to Timothy, by the way, Timothy was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Paul placed him there. And John's last days after he came back from exile, he was said to have spent his last days alive on this earth in Ephesus. Paul said to Timothy, Now I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you charge some that they teach no other doctrine. False teachers came running in. We got their names in scripture. Paul says, no, you got to remain there to keep them out. Now may I say that there is such a thing as false doctrine and false teaching? There really is. And the word of God describes it as Doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter days some will depart from the faith, meaning from sound doctrine or from sound teaching, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisies. Friends, sound doctrine and true doctrine, true doctrine will always be subject to attack by the enemy of our souls, always. Everywhere God sows seeds of truth, Satan is going to come along and sow seeds of false teaching somehow, some way. And Everywhere that sound teaching takes place, Satan's got his emissaries there waiting for that open door. But if we keep that door closed because we stay in sound doctrine, sound teaching, including ourselves, we can keep him at bay. Sound doctrine and true doctrine will always be subject to attack from the enemy of our souls. That's why we verify another saying of mine, quote, test all opinions and utterances on the altar of biblical fidelity. Now, I wish I could claim that's my own little thing that I thought of myself. That's all mine. It's not. There was a man at Westminster Chapel under Martin Lloyd-Jones named E.G. Young, and he penned that. Let me say it one more time. Test all opinions and all utterances on the altar of biblical fidelity. Brian, does that mean we test you? Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's go over to Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> the Bereans. Paul talked about the Bereans. 
I'll wait till I hear the pages. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. Chapter 17, verse 10. Verse 11 is what we're going to key in on. And I know you know this verse well, but let's pick it up in 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogues of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness, but searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Folks, do you understand that these people were questioning Paul? The great apostle Paul was preaching in the synagogue, and these people receiving the word, but they didn't end there. They went and searched the scriptures daily to make sure that what Paul was teaching them was true. Now, Paul applauds that. Jason. At that point? That's a great question. I wonder at that time in Acts, how much of the canon of scripture was already written and exposed? I can't answer that. I don't know the answer. I don't know. They're running it through the Old Testament. How would that align with what? Well, great question. I don't know. Anybody, anybody have a thought, an answer? But he's preaching the gospel. Fair. Okay. Yeah. I know that Paul said to Timothy, bring me my books and made it clear that when he said all scripture, I know that he included the Old Testament there. So Old Testament and New. Yeah, yeah, fair to say. Yeah, they're looking at that just saying, here's a wonderful letter from Paul. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have a John MacArthur study Bible? Anybody have a John MacArthur study Bible? Does he make comment on Acts 17, 11? Does he, does he say? <laughs> What's, yeah, well, you can look at his commentary too, yeah. Does he, does he say anything? Okay. Okay. Hey, folks. There's something that you guys could go home and go do. Yeah, go look it up. Yeah. Here's the point. Test all opinions and utterances on the altar of biblical fidelity. Whoever's teaching. I, I never want people to ever leave and say, you know, I believe this because Brian did a good job convincing me. Oh, I don't ever want to hear that. I want you to leave here and study it and go, I'm convinced because the Holy Spirit taught me. Now, I have a purpose. Or I have a motive in studying the doctrines of grace. My purpose and my prayer is that the study of the doctrines of grace will develop you and myself once again 
to a greater love, a greater adoration, a greater exaltation, a greater worship of God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ when you recognize and see what he has done in the entirety of your salvation. The driving factor, the motive of why I love the doctrines of grace and I want to teach them is because I want myself included in this to fall in love with God the Father, with God the Son, the triune God and the Holy Spirit for their work in our salvation. And the doctrines of grace, when, when understood to the best of our finite minds, will make men humble and exalt God the Father. And if at the end of our 18 weeks, we fall in love with God the Father and God the Son that much more, praise God, he gets the glory. Have you ever heard the song, and I don't know the name of it, I'm going to try to get the CD, we got it at home. The chorus says, only by grace do we enter, and only by grace do we stand. Into your presence you call us, and now by your grace we stand. Do you, do you, know, do you know that chorus? I won't hum it or sing it, because it'll just make you sick, but... I'll, I'll bring the CD. Josh, Nate, if I were to bring a CD, do you have the capability up there playing it? Perfect. Make me a note. You, I think you'll recognize it when you've heard it. Yeah, Jason. You're right. Yeah. And, and these doctrines, these teachings are going to affect you theologically forever. But where I also hope it will affect you to the point where you love that gospel and you want that gospel to go out and it motivates you to take that gospel of grace to a lost and dying world. Because none of us in this room know who God's elect are. We can't lift up the back of their shirt and see them stamped elect. I think it was Justin said that our Arminian friends think that we're arrogant when we're Calvinistic in our views. And I agree with him. I don't think we're arrogant. Because when we really understand it, man, it sends you to your knees. It's arrogant to think that you need to help God out and make God subject to you and what you're going to do. To me, that's arrogant. Yes.
Amen. Yeah, it is. I'm a fan of R.C. Sproul. Um, I feel the same way. When, when Lori and I embraced Jesus Christ, I, I don't ever want to, I try not to use the word, I accepted Christ. I know we use that. I, I like to use the term, when I embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and his gift of eternal life. We sat under fantastic teaching, um, extremely reformed. And when I heard the doctrines of grace, my first year as a believer, I went, whoa. And then as I kept hearing it and reading it and studying it and embracing it, I was troubled. You know, I'll be real transparent here. I have three daughters, three beautiful daughters. And I couldn't save Courtney Callier Cameron. I knew that that's up to God. And I didn't know if they were elect or not. Lori and I were going to raise and train them in the admission of the Lord. And, and our good Lord and Savior is going to do the rest. But, but I couldn't bring Courtney to faith. I couldn't bring Callie to faith. I couldn't bring Cameron to faith. Oh, that troubled me. And I had to trust in a good and merciful and gracious God. So that's why I didn't like the doctrines of grace. But as I kept studying them, I fell in love with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that fear went away. Right. When, when I look out, and, out, out of the slew of humanity, he saved me. I, I'm a rat. I'm a rat. I'm no good. And he chose me before the foundation of the world. Mm. Yeah, good comments. Good comment, Jason. So let's keep going. I'm going to kind of wrap this up here with you. Now, before looking into the first component of the doctrines of grace, I want to establish the fact that you and I are finite. That you and I have limited faculties. That we're limited in our faculty to understand some of the greater truths of God. Bear with me to see where I'm taking you. Now, I think that's important because so much of people want to reject it because they don't understand it. Well, I'm going to look out at all of you and say there are things in the doctrines of grace I do not understand. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 55 and let's look at verses 8 and 9 and see what God's word says to us about trying to understand God. A very familiar verse, Isaiah 55, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> verses 8 and 9. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways 
are not your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Turn over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Verse 33 and 34. Very familiar to all of us. And as you're turning there, before I read verse 33 and 34, Paul used Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, three chapters, three chapters to defend, to outline God's sovereignty in the election of Israel and the election of the believer. Three chapters to prove definitively the sovereignty of God. And when he gets to the end, he says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now look what he says next. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Let's keep going. Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That should end it right there. Folks, we're finite. We don't have the full capacity and capability of understanding in the, the mind of God. What we know about God's plan, God's ways, is what's written in Scripture. And aside from that, there's nothing else. But because some of these truths are so great, so high, they're unattainable. We can only know so much. And then we got to leave it there. And I think about Romans chapter 9 right now, where Paul's laying out the argument. And he says, who are you to question the potter? <laughs> the clay? Is not the potter able to mold and shape whomever and whatever he wants? Certainly he is. We can't comprehend fully these tremendous theological truths. Now friends, we're going to mine. We're going to scarify some of the deepest theological truths concerning the salvific work of God in the regeneration of the believer. Over the next 18 weeks, we are going to turn the soil up. We're going to plow deep into the Word of God. We are going to study high doctrine and try to understand these deep theological truths concerning the salvific work of God 
in the regeneration of the believer. And because of our limited ability to understand the mind of God and the workings of God in our salvation, this does not negate the teaching of Scripture regarding the elements of salvation. Though we can't fully comprehend and come to a full, complete understanding, it doesn't negate the teaching of Scripture. Now let me state it another way. Because of our inability to fully grasp the working of the triune God in our salvation, that does not eliminate the fact that Scripture teaches that the believer is predestined, elected, justified, and glorified. And all of that is done fully, solely, and holy of the triune God. We had nothing to do with it. We're going to see that over the weeks. It was all of God. Now, I'm going to say that one more time because I really want that to sink in. And I'm using biblical terms. The fact that Scripture teaches that the believer's predestination, election, justification, and the glorification is fully, solely, and wholly of God. It's a divine work of God. Man has nothing to do with it. Now let me support that. You still got your Bibles open to Romans? Drop back to... My favorite verses, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is God's eternal, unfailing, purpose through the gospel. Verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. Stop there just for a minute. Every true and genuine believer in Jesus Christ has been called according to God's purpose. Now look what Paul says next, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these also he will glorify. And I could go on and on. I'd love to. I love it. Friends, you and I are part of God's purpose. And he called us to that purpose. And that purpose was to believe in his son. 
We're going to look at Ephesians 2.8. What's the gift? The faith? What about the believing? (laughs) One of the last things I'm going to do is just a little exegetical study. Take you through a little hermeneutical principle. The simplest thing in the world for for Bible study. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. That's been debated for years. Romans 8, 28 through 30. So friends, who's responsible for our predestination, election, justification, and glorification? God. God. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Sound like a broken record. One more time. God's fully, F-U-L-L-Y, solely, S-O-L-E-L-Y, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, fully, solely, and wholly responsible for our salvation. God. Not God, not 99.9% God and 1% Brian Wood. Uh Uh-uh. I didn't see anything in Romans that said anything about me, except that I was called and predestined, justified, glorified. He called me. I didn't call him. What did Peter say? He called us out of darkness into his marvelous what? Light. Who called who? God did it. The next bunch of weeks here, it's gonna get it's gonna get good. So let me end by saying this scripture is replete with this teaching. The doctrines of grace. It's replete through it. Scriptures replete that God is fully, solely, and wholly responsible for our salvation. It's, it's a divine work of God and nothing else. So if you and I are not able to fully understand the divine work of God in the chain of salvations, what should be our response? Go to 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Great place to call it quits tonight. So I said to you, if you and I are not able to fully understand the divine work of God in the chain of salvation, what should be our response? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I might cheat and go to 14 too. Everybody there? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to who? God. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, from the beginning, 
chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and the belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for obtaining the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, it's interesting. When I talk with my dear friend, Sam. Sam's my timber framer. He's came to faith about 10 years ago. He's very Arminian. He was brought up in that church up in Bonners Ferry. I think it's the Church of God or Church of Christ. I'm not sure. Extremely Arminian. Sam, when when you want to reach somebody or present the gospel or if somebody gets saved, who, who, who do you think? Oh, I thank God. Good answer. He should. We don't ever thank somebody else for our salvation, do we? We don't pray to anybody else but to God for the salvation of our lost friends and family, right? We thank God. Why? Because from the beginning, he called us or chose us. They got it mixed up. They really got it mixed up. But I want to end to say this. Our Arminians are our brothers in Christ. And you're never going to win a battle with them if you're going to argue Scripture with them. But if you can point to Scripture and leave Scripture with them and leave it to the Holy Spirit, we might win them over. But I can tell you right now, Sam and I have had conversations after conversations for a lot of half hours over the years on the job. He's setting his theology. But the power unto salvation is the gospel, and the gospel is of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to leave it in the hands of the Holy Spirit to reach those blessed brothers. He believes in Christ by grace through faith alone. His theology says different, though. That's our introduction. Now, next week, uh, most Preachers, teachers of the doctrines of grace start at the beginning. They start at total depravity. I'm going to do something different. In 2009, when I was preaching at Faith Bible Church in uh, Libby, Montana, for uh, a lengthy period, the elders said, Brian, Chuck, uh, a very outspoken man in the congregation, believes you can lose your salvation. I said, yeah, I, I know that. And they said, would you please, would you please do a series on eternal security? I said, well, that's, that's an easy request. That's some of my favorite subject matters, the doctrines of grace. Oh, would you do the doctrines of grace? Yeah, will you let me back into it? Will you let me start at the perseverance of the saints and work backwards? Yeah, sure, go for it. I'm going to do it again. So instead of starting where most people start, total depravity, 
the tea of tulip. I'm going to start in the P, the perseverance of the saints. I'm going to work backwards into the doctrines. I hope you'll enjoy it. So that'll start next next week. And I'm anticipating two weeks per subject matter. But uh, you're kind of counting, well, there's five words in, or five letters in tulips. Isn't that ten weeks? <laughs> yeah, we, I got an 18-week series I put together. So. Any questions before I close this in prayer? Sure. Jeff. You mentioned earlier that the doctrines of grace were revealed for the first time in the Gospel of John. Yeah. Do you see no uh, Old Testament? I, I do. I Absolutely. I see the underpinning. Absolutely. But when we look at just the doctrines themselves being taught, it was our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who introduced them in the Gospel of John. Well, in John 3, he rebuked Nicodemus for not knowing yeah. about being born again. Yeah. It's revealed in the Old Testament, but the actual, just the teaching and going systematically through it, our Lord did it. How about Paul? Right behind him. Because he references the Abrahamic covenant, that's his foundation for it. Yeah. So would that be a prior to the Gospel of John? But you said Paul. Paul wrote the New Testament. True, but he references mm-hmm. Old Testament. In soteriology. Yeah. I agree. And he calls in Galatians 3.8 yep. the gospel yep. to Abraham. Yeah, I know. So isn't that a doctrine of grace? Abraham. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But the one who, who went systematically and deeply into it, really introduced it in the New Testament, is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay. And Paul came in right behind him. Yeah. Anybody else? Great questions. Great feedback. I'm glad to see that you recognize that that scripture in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. Could miss it. The Jews did. Any 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 anybody else? Okay. Well, folks, let me close in prayer and thank you so much for coming. Our introduction, you know where we're going and where we're heading, and and I hope that uh, I hope that you'll appreciate. Uh, the direction I'm going backing into the doctrines this time again. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we live in a time that we have the precious, holy scriptures, the word of God. And that we have the freedom here in America, in a country that just seems like it's collapsing left and right, but we still have the freedom to come out tonight as we have, to worship Sunday morning as we do. We still have the freedoms, Father, to study your word and to gather. As brothers and sisters and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, called out of darkness into your marvelous light to now embark in this magnificent study of the deep doctrines, the deep theology of the doctrines of grace. Father, my prayer and my hope always will be, once again, that we will love you that much more. That we would never take for granted as we grow older in our walk and in our faith, that we won't take for granted our salvation. That we would see our salvation as it is, strictly a divine work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and help us to embrace these magnificent truths and uh, help us to understand them as best as we can. And like Charles Spurgeon said, Father, he said, you know, the doctrines of grace, when you look at what, uh, how man responds, you see two railroad tracks that run parallel together and they end up in heaven. Uh, he, he himself did not quite understand them. And I admit here tonight with my brothers and sisters that I don't either. But I certainly embrace them and I thank you for pressing my heart to do that because it really changed my love and my affections for you. And uh, daily, when I fall short of your glory, I love you that much more when I realize that uh, you're responsible for who I am in Christ and where I will be one day in a glorified state with him. Father, you get the glory, you get the honor, and you get the uh, worship and the praise. Help us to do that greater as we continue week after week and uh, continue to conform us into that image of your son. We love you and we thank you and we... Uh, appreciate immensely this wonderful building that you've blessed us to be able to come now and have a weekly, nightly uh, family study. Thank you for this building, Father. We're grateful beyond measure for all things. And I'm reminded as I close that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I love the way that Paul launches into that in Ephesians, that pay it of praise. We love you and thank you. We pray this in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.